sorry, I might the wrong. I feel like it's not. So in July, um, workers at the supermarkets, Coles and Woolworths or Woolies as we call it, were the victims of what is being called the plastic bag rage. And maybe you were one of those customers. I don't know. <laughs> but what happened was um, here in Victoria, that the as well as in other states in Australia, uh, single-use plastic bags um, were removed from the supermarkets and from other places. Um, and people reacted with great anger. And in fact, there was a story of one customer in Western Australia who grabbed a female worker by the throat because he was so upset that he wasn't getting his plastic bags for his groceries. Consumer psychology... Tinkerbell. Okay, sorry. Testing, hello? Okay. Um, Thinkerbell Adam Ferrier said that the reaction was actually a little scary. I would say it's very scary. He said humans don't like change, and this reaction is proving just how little change people are actually prepared to put up with. And I, I acknowledge that change is difficult. I can't tell you how many times I forgot to take something, and then I'd be like, oh, that's right. And, you know, it's all right. I took the car. I just put everything in the boot. So change is difficult because we're so used to doing things in a certain way. But I want to challenge us to think that change is necessary. And the thing is that plastic isn't all bad. Plastic has saved many lives through its use in hospitals, um, as well as seatbelts, for example. How many lives have seatbelts saved in cars? But single-use plastic, like plastic bags and bottles and straws, can really harm the environment. So, for example, each year there are over 8 million metric tons of plastic that enter the world's oceans. So specifically here in Australia, in Australian waters, there are over 40,000 pieces of plastic per square kilometer. I don't know if you've ever gone swimming or scuba diving or snorkeling, but they're finding that the Great Barrier Reef, for example, which is heritage listed, is something that we're very proud of as Australians, that there's so much pollution that's going in there as well and affecting the, the marine life. Um, also, microbeads um, are, you know, small, and you think that um, they're not a big problem, but they are because marine life can ingest them. And each piece of plastic can take up to 1,000 years to break down. The marine life are greatly harmed by um, our practices, by the pollution. They get tangled up in them, um, which you know, prevents them being, from being able to swim and find food. Or sometimes they think it's food. And what happens with plastic is that plastic is kind of like a sponge. So it soaks up all the other chemicals and toxins around as well. And sometimes things like algae grow on over the plastic. And um, so the animals think that, you know, they can get some food. So then they actually go for it. But then they ingest it and they get all the toxins inside. Turtles, whales, dolphins, seabirds have all been found to have plastic in their stomach content. According to a study by World Economics Forum, by 2050, the mass of plastic in the world's oceans will exceed the mass of fish in all the waters. But that's not all. It's not just the sea life that are affected. Plastic pollutes the soil and the air. And I learned this. As, I learned so much while I was doing this research for this sermon um, that the toxins from the plastic create um, 
basically they erode the earth and they create pockets. And what happens is that the, they destabilize the earth and cause sinkholes and earthquakes. And that was something new that I learned. Wildlife on land are also harmed by the plastic as each pollutant becomes more concentrated. So if, if something eats the fish, then that becomes more concentrated in the thing that ate the fish. And then the next thing that eats that animal, there's more concentration. So it, at each food chain level, the, the toxic, to toxicity of, from that plastic content increases. So you can imagine for, for human beings at the top of the food chain, that means we are getting a lot of that toxin, which leads to possibly cancer. It can lead to hormonal imbalance and um, uh, disturbances, as well as birth defects and other problems with the immune system. Even if we properly recycle plastic in our yellow bins, if they have been contaminated by rubbish, they cannot recycle it, and then it gets um, either buried or burnt. And of course, the carbon dioxide produced by the burning creates, it contributes to the climate change, which then contributes to stronger storms and everything that's happening in the world today. There's really bad hurricanes happening in the U.S. at the moment. So if you live in South Australia, the Australian capital, uh, capital Territory, Tasmania, Northern Territory, Queensland, and Western Australia, single-use lightweight plastic bags have been completely banned. And for us here in Victoria, there is a plan to phase it out by the end of 2019. New South Wales alone has not yet made this plan. So if any visitors or if anyone's watching, you know what to do. <laughs> Um, there's countries and cities around the world who have taken up this campaign to limit plastic. So you can see on the map which areas around the world have, um, have taken steps to limit plastic usage. Specifically, the UK, you know, Australia, we love, we love the UK. We have very specific ties there. The UK has had a tax on plastic bags since 2015, which has resulted in 9 billion fewer plastic bags in circulation. So that has made a difference. In January of this year, the UK announced a 25-year plan to set the global stars, a global gold standard on eliminating plastic waste. They have banned plastic microbes um, that are found in things like body scrubs. You know how body scrubs sometimes have those things that like help you, like facial scrubs, and you feel that those are going into the water and um, hurting the the environment. They're also working on a plan to ban um, plastic straws, stirrers, and cotton buds. And even the Queen of England this February has banned plastic straws and bottles from all of the royal estates. But we don't look to individuals or to countries to be our role model. For us, we're here to explore a Christian worldview. So our question is always and will be, what would Jesus do? And what is his will for us? What does the Bible say about caring for the environment? And the first and first thing that the Bible tells us, as Ben very, very well um, shared with us, is that fundamental claim of the Bible that God creates and sustains all life. We saw that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? That the earth was formless and dark and empty, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters, and he said, let there be light, and there was light. And so we saw, thank you, Ben, for doing days one through seven, right? So I don't have to go over it. And I'll just focus on the one that um, talk about these creatures. So 
We're going to jump to verse 20. It says, Then God said, Let the water swarm with fish and other life, and let the skies be filled with birds of every kind. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that scurries and swarms in the water, and every sort of bird, each producing offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, let the fish fill the seas, let the birds multiply in the earth. And evening and morning came, making the fifth day. And then, of course, the next day, God said, Let the earth produce every sort of animal, each producing offspring of the same kind, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, and wild animals. And that is what happened. God made all sorts of wild animals, livestock, small animals, each able to produce offering of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. You see, all the insects, all the birds and the sea creatures and animals, everything that God created had this incredible potential and, and call to multiply and diversify um, into the very species that we have today. And the Bible says that not only did he create, but he sustains this life that he has created. So in the book of Colossians, which is in the New Testament of the Bible, um, the writer, Paul, a Christian missionary, he says, For through him, and he's talking about Jesus, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms, rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. In other words, there isn't a single breath that is breathed by any creature on this earth that is not sustained by God. And here's the verse that says so. Job chapter 12, verse 10. For the life of every living thing is in his hand and the breath of every human being. So because all of nature is God's creation, he cares for each and every living thing. When Jesus was here on earth and he was speaking to the multitudes, this is what he said. What is the price of two sparrows? One copper coin? Today, we probably wouldn't pay for them, right? But not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. And the very hairs in your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. Now here God says that God does not place the value in the life of the animal above the value of a human life. But what he is saying that that doesn't mean that they don't matter. He's saying they do matter. Yes, human, human life matters more, but the lives of every living thing matters to God. He notices when a single bird drops to the ground. Now, I used to live in New York City. There are a lot of pigeons, a lot of pigeons. And I remember reading this verse and, and seeing all the pigeons and thinking, that's a lot of birds that God is noticing every millisecond of every day. But the Bible says he does notice, he does care. When the prophet named Jonah was sent to help a city to repent, Jonah is very upset because he doesn't, he doesn't want God to show mercy. And what God does, he wants to teach him a lesson. And so God has this plant, you know, grow up. Jonah is very happy because he's very hot in the plant, give him shade. But then the plant withers. It's one of those plants that, you know, kind of grows and then withers away. And then Jonah is really upset that the plant has died. And this is what God says to Jonah. He says, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did not, nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? Notice how God cares, not just for the people in a city, in an area, but he cares about the animals too. Every living thing matters to God. 
And when we go back to the original Genesis story, we find out that not only do they matter to God, but he created us to care for them, to, to, to care about every living thing as well. So if we go back to Genesis, this is what it says. God, after he creates mankind, he says, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals in the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. You see, humanity was created in God's image, which means they were created to be like God. So when God ordains them to reign and govern over the earth and fill it, he's saying to do it like God. That is, with justice, compassion, and humility, because that's how God reigns. God treats each life with dignity and love, protecting and nurturing and empowering each one to reach its full potential, even at the expense of his own life. And so he ordains us to care for and cultivate the earth and all its life forms, helping them reach their full potential, asking us to make unselfish choices as well. And we see an example of this um, in Genesis. So after all the animals are created, after he creates Adam, it says, the Lord God formed the ground, all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. Can you imagine having a pet of every kind of animal and bird? It's, it sounds like a lot, but did you know that um, there's a lady in California, her name is Linnea Latanzio, and she loves cats. And so she has created, so she's got this five-bedroom house in California, and she has turned that house into a sanctuary for abandoned cats. She has rescued in 24 years 28,000 cats. And she has now moved out of her five-bedroom house and lives in a trailer next to the house and has given this 500 house over to her. How many cats? 1,000 cats. 1,000 cats. Why would anybody do that? And I want to propose to you that caring for animals is a characteristic that reflects the image of God, that God has programmed our DNA to care for animals. It's something that he has put on humanity since the beginning of time. Did you know that Australians spend $12.2 billion a year on their pets? Why? Why would they spend so much money on these pets? Again, because God has put it on the hearts of humanity to care for animals. According to statistics, more than 62% of Australian households own a pet. I'll tell you the breakdown of dogs and cats and birds later. In one survey, over half of those who don't have pets said they wish they had a pet. It doesn't make evolutionary sense to have a pet. They're expensive and high maintenance, and they don't help perpetuate your DNA. The fact, I believe, that so many of the world population love animals and own pets despite their expense, despite the fact they have to clean up after them, despite the fact that you have to have them in a hotel when you go on vacation, despite all those things, people do that because God has put it in the heart of humanity to love animals. It's, it's something evolution says, dominate, 
you know, survival of the fittest. But creation says, love the cute little innocent bunny, okay? It's amazing when you see, have a baby or a young child and you, and you show them pictures of animals. Their instinct is not to eat it, eat it, right? They don't look at a cow and say, let me bite that, right? Their instinct is to go and cuddle it. Every time Joshua sees a picture of um, an, any, any animal, the lion, it doesn't matter, he smooshes his face against the book and he tries to cuddle it. <laughs> and when I take him to the zoo, as soon as I drive into the parking lot, he recognizes where we are and he cries out, animals, thank you, mommy. Like he loves visiting these animals because God has put it in the heart of humanity innately to care for animals. Some people think that God created animals for human use and consumption, that meeting the human needs was their created purpose. But if you go back and look at how God created Yes, God certainly values human life above the life of the animal, but God did not create them originally to be food or to be our livestock to work for us, right? The Bible says that he created these creatures to be loved, to thrive for their own beauty and creativity and diversity. They weren't there to serve humanity's desires, but for humanity to love, protect, and nurture the way that we do our pets, In God's original design, all animals, birds, and insects ate green plants for food. They did not eat each other. And so we see in Genesis that God said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth, all the fruit trees for your food. And I have given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, and the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. And that is what happened. So everything ate plants. And what did humans eat? Um, In Genesis 2, it says that God gave humans fruits and nuts to eat. And everybody was happy living in this Edenic garden where they're just loving each other and enjoying each other. It wasn't until after the flood when the entire earth was covered by water and therefore there were no trees and plants because it was all submerged that God said, okay, you can now eat animals to survive. And in certain parts of the world today, that is still the case where it's very difficult to get fresh fruit, food and um, animal cons- consumption is necessary for human survival. But the fact is that many of us do have a choice today um, where we live to have that choice to limit um, our intake of, of animal food, but also where we get that food. There's been many documentaries that show how terrible the conditions are for a lot of these animals. Um, And I think that it's something that we really need to consider the next time we are making choices about our food consumption. Recently in the news, the sheep exporters in WA had their license suspended um, after video footage showed how these sheep were dying or dead from just the heat um, and the exhaustion of being shipped to the Middle East. The company only cared about profit and not the welfare of the animals. And this has prompted new loading density rules, right? People got get upset about it, and now there's new reg- legislation to phase out the Middle East northern summer trade. And so laws can protect um, the environment and nature. And, you know, did you know that God actually had a lot of laws? You know, in the Old Testament, people people sometimes think the Old Testament is, is not relevant for us, and it's all these laws, and God was so strict. But actually, the Old Testament shows us a loving God, a loving God who had a plan for his creation, a loving God who put regulations in place to protect his creation. And let me give you just a few examples. When he was speaking to the Israelites, who are a group of people um, in 
uh, in the Middle East who basically were starting as a new new nation, needed a new government and new laws, and God was their direct rule giver, and he gave them this law. This is around the 15th century BC. He said, plant and harvest your crops for six years, but let the land be renewed and lie uncultivated during the seventh year. Then let the poor among you harvest whatever grows on its own. Leave the rest for wild animals to eat. The same applies to your vineyards and olive groves. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but on the seventh day, you must stop working. This gives your ox and your donkeys a chance to rest. It also allows your slaves and the foreigners living among you to be refreshed. You see, God had this law in place so that the land would not be stripped of its resources. He put this law in place so that the poor among them could, could come through freely in that seventh year and eat as much as they wanted from the harvest that grew naturally. He wanted the animals, the wild animals, as, uh, to be able to come through and eat and survive. And he also wanted the, the domestic animals, the livestock who were helping you know, with agriculture to have that Sabbath rest every seventh day. Here's a few more examples of God's laws. You must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain. Right? He's saying it's cruel to not let it eat while it's working for you. This is another one. I kind of like this one. Um, when you are attacking a town and the war drags on, you must not cut down the trees with your axes. You may eat the fruit, but do not cut down the trees. Are the trees your enemies that you should attack them? God is saying, hey, leave creation alone. Don't attack your creation. They, they're not your enemies. They haven't hurt you. But sadly, the Israelites did not follow God's laws. Humanity has always rebelled, following their own selfish and greedy desires. And the ones who suffer the most are the vulnerable and the innocent. Here's what the Bible says. The earth suffers for the sins of its people, for they have twisted God's instructions, violated his laws, and broken his everlasting covenant. The choices of humanity harmed the planet. The moment Adam and Eve sinned, nature became impacted. The ground became impacted. The animals were impacted. And God does not leave that unchecked. God doesn't say, oh, it doesn't matter if they're suffering because of humanity. No, God has a plan. He cares very much. When the Israelites continued to ignore God, sending message after message through prophet after prophet, trying to tell them to change their ways, because they did several things badly. They stopped paying their tithes and offerings. They stopped prioritizing God. They were not attending his te temple. They were mistreating their workers and manipulating and, and you know, paying them uh, minimum or lower wages than they were supposed to. They were neglecting the poor. They, but they were also abusing the animals and exploiting the land, and God calls them out on that. In fact, he, he exiles the Israelites from their land for 70 years. And this is what Second Chronicles um, chapter 36, verse 21 says. It says, so the message of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah, who was a prophet, a messenger from God, was fulfilled. The land finally enjoyed its Sabbath rest, lying desolate until the 70 years were fulfilled, just as the prophet had said. In other words, the people did not keep God's laws. They did not rest the land every seven years like they were supposed to. So then God removes them from that land, so the land gets to have their 70 years of rest that was overdue. God does not let the abuse of his creation go unchecked. There's a passage in the New Testament, the book of Romans, where, again, Paul, that Christian missionary, is speaking to these new believers, and he says, Yo, 
and he and these believers are being persecuted. And he says, "Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies that he has promised us. You see, it's not just humanity that is suffering. It's not just the innocent people here on earth that are, are crying out because of the injustice of humanity's selfishness. Creation is also groaning. It says that creation is suffering, but they're also looking forward to justice, that God has a plan. And we call it justice, we call it judgment. It's the same thing. Judgment is not a scary word. It's a wonderful word because it means that the wrong is going to be made right. Psalm 96, let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea and everything in it shout its praise. Let the fields and their crops burst out with joy. Let the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming. He's coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with justice and the nations with his truth. And here's... Um, in the book of Revelation, which is written by one of the disciples of Jesus. And he received these visions from God of what the end of the world and Jesus' second coming will be like. And this is what he was given. What, this is what he saw. The nations were filled with wrath, but now the time of your wrath has come. It is time to judge the dead and reward your servants, the prophets, as well as your holy people and all who fear, who fear your name from the least to the greatest. It is time to destroy all who have caused the destruction on the earth. You see, God cares about the suffering of his creation, and he has a plan to redeem it all. In the book of Revelation, John goes on to say that after the judgment, there is a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth has disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them and he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And like I said, it's not just the suffering of humanity that is eliminated. The suffering of all of creation is now gone and they get to experience the peace and freedom of the new creation. This is what it says in Isaiah. In that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion, and the little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. The baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Yes, a little child will put its hand in a nest of deadly snakes without harm. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for as the waters fill the sea... So the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. You see, God says that he's going to recreate animals. You know, he doesn't just create, resurrect the dead and, and there's a new heaven and earth and with just people. There's going to be animals. And, and those animals are going to be like in that beginning of time with Adam and Eve when they were at peace with each other and at peace with humanity. And there was this loving, thriving environment. And we would once more be their caretakers. 
And so meantime, God calls us here and now to care for his creation. And we're not just called to care for the environment so that our children's children can enjoy nature and call it home. It's not about us. You see, the Christian worldview is not just an echo of a secular environmentalist worldview. They have a good worldview, but ours is different. We're not just echoing a political idea or a popular sentiment. We are exploring what the Bible says, and we're looking at it from a Christ-centered perspective, looking at who God is and what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do. And the Bible tells us that God created all things, sustains all things, will redeem all things, and recreate all things. And so where does that leave us? The Bible says, from Genesis to Revelation, that God created us in his image to be like him, to promote life, to sustain life, to govern, protect, and nurture his creation, to participate in God's redemptive plan, and to empower and cultivate all creation to worship and glorify their creator. You see, that is the Christian worldview. It's, it's, it's about helping all of creation glorify and praise the creator. For all creation freed from the selfishness of humanity and saved by Jesus' complete unselfish sacrifice glorifies God. There's a scene in Revelation of this great worship. And it says, I looked again, I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and of the living beings and the elders. And they sang in a mighty chorus, worthy is a lamb who is slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. And they sang blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped the lamb. You know, the Bible actually, I don't have time because I was doing so much. I was telling Roy uh, last night and today, I was like, I could write a whole dissertation and book on this because I was never one of those people who cared that much about the environment. You know, I, I cared. I, I did my part. I sorted the recycling and the rubbish and things like that. But I wasn't going out of my way or, you know, doing extra things. But as I was doing the research for this sermon and as, as I thought about all the um, theology and all, all of the worldview that God created and everything, it really convicted me. Um, and there's all these stories of God opening up animals' mouths so that they can talk and sing and praise. And so I won't go into it, but it says that they will come when all the creatures will be singing God's, God's, God's praise. And I can't wait for that kind of amazing um, symphony of sounds. But you know, through this, I'm realizing, you know what, I, there's, we, we can do more. Uh, we can do more. And maybe, maybe we can't do everything, but there's something we can do. Um, I'm ashamed of the amount of recycling and rubbish that I put out every week. Our bins are like overflowing. And so something that I'm, I'm trying to do is buy less um, and to reuse more. Did you know that Australians rank 13th out of 18 countries for sustainable consumption. This is research done by National Geographic. And I, I, didn't, I can't fit all 18 on there, so I just kind of put a few. But it's surprising. Are you surprised? I'm surprised. But what it's basically telling us is that Australians love to buy things. We love to consume things, whether it's electricity or whether it's um, you know, private 
consumerism of, of purchasing new items or whatever it is, we consume a lot. Okay, we consume a lot. I have a friend who doesn't own, who has never owned a mobile phone or a car. She bikes her two children to childcare every morning and then jumps on public transportation to go to work. Her children only have wooden or handmade toys, and she and her husband do everything they can to reuse, recycle, and reduce. And I admire her, and I admire all those people who have zero waste, you know, people who, like, can put all their waste in a year in, like, a little cup. And, and, and I, I don't think I can get there quite yet, but there's one thing or a few things that, that I can do and maybe we can all do, just starting with one change. Like the next time you have a choice to buy or receive something brand new, consider getting it secondhand. Do we really need that latest technology? Okay. Consider getting your next, next time you have to buy something, consider getting it animal free. And of course, remember to take your reusable containers or bags to Coles and Woolies. And as we make more unselfish choices, we will find ourselves praising God more and thinking about ourselves less. We'll become content with what we have and become less anxious about what we might lose. We will find happiness in God and who cre he created us to be rather than the things we achieve and the stuff we have. We will begin to see and hear and feel God as we spend time in creation and we will join with all creation in praising our creator. For this is our father's world. And we are his children. And we are called to take care of his creation. I'm going to invite Roy up to sing. This is my father's world. As my children get whisked away. <laughs> now after the song. We're going to take a group photo. Now. I was hoping if it's not raining, that we could take it outside on the steps coming into this building. So just keep that in mind, so don't go anywhere. Um, if it, it is raining, we'll do it in here, but just stay tuned. <laughs>